It is great to see everything put back together again after the banquet last night. Did you guys have a good time? Oh, yeah. yeah, I did too. I did too. Took me a long time to shave all that hair off so I could look like an old man again. <laughs> Had to do it just carefully to get the right look. But uh, yeah, it was, qu- it was quite a busy week actually. Just glad to have the message for this morning. Don't expect too much. Uh, no funnies in the message. I used all that up last night <laughs> and then just ran out of time. But we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. So we're back in the book of 1 John, as Pastor Dan mentioned. We're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. If you want to turn there, and as you are turning there, maybe you've you know, heard people talking about profiling people. Um, It's kind of gotten a a bad name because you hear a lot of talk about racial profiling primarily. Uh, But profiling is not necessarily a negative thing. Profiling is the analysis of a person's overall behavior so that you can kind of learn something about them. You can look at characteristics such as maybe their mannerisms, their posture, the way they dress, online records, body language, speech patterns. And all of these things can tell you something about a person. And often that's done to place them into a particular group of people. Employers might use it to qualify a candidate or to learn how to interact more effectively with an existing employee. But it's most widely used by law enforcement to identify suspects or potential threats And so, we all profile people. We really do. If you're looking at a crowd of people, for instance, you might spot someone wearing a large western hat, boots, jeans, big belt buckle. You might hear them speaking with a southern drawl. And then you might hear them listening to a particular style of music. And you would say to yourself, that's a cowboy. I put him into a cowboy group. Or you could do the same thing with the biker. We had a lot of bikers up here last night, right? You could do the same thing with the businessman. There's different ways that we look at people and we tend to categorize them. Well, we do that because it's pretty effective in telling us certain things about a person. You can usually tell something by observing those outward appearances and behaviors. And so with this being the case, how would you identify a Christian? Could you pick one out? Jesus said that we should be able to profile a Christian. Think about that. He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you love one another. You should be able to pick a Christian out by their outward appearance, behavior, speech, mannerisms, posture toward other people. We should be able to profile a Christian. Their love should be a giveaway. And it should set a Christian apart from all other people. And not only does this love identify them as a follower of Christ, but it also gives the believer the assurance that they are in Christ. And so this leads us to the 
the title of our series. It's called Absolute Certainty, and it's a study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And by now, you should have memorized the key verse, 1st John 5.13, which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know with absolute certainty that you have eternal life. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at another important way that we can know that we have eternal life. And the message, as Dan mentioned in the welcome, is called Absolute Certainty Through Loving Action. And we're going to see three parts to this, I hope. The first is the essence of love in verses 11 through 13. And then secondly, the evidence of love in 14 and 15. And finally, the example of love in verses 16 through 18. So we'll take a minute and read through the passage first. And then we'll uh, dig in. So, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11. Again, I'm reading from the 1984 NIV translation. It reads, This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're here as a church family and visitors, and we're gathered, and we're opening your word, and Lord, we're eager to hear from you. We're hungry to hear your truth, God. So I pray that you would open our hearts and minds so that we can hear your voice and we can apply this truth to our lives, God. So use this, use your word by your Holy Spirit to change us and to transform us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, if I counted right, over 40 times in these three short letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, John talks about love. Some people have called the epistles love letters because there's so much focus on love. And do you remember what the name that John called himself when he was with Jesus? The disciple that Jesus loved. There's a lot in here about love. And I actually wrestled with how much to dig into this topic of love again because we covered it in chapter 2. And we're going to see it again in chapter 4. But something I firmly believe in is that the word of God is not only the right message, it's in the right proportion. And so if God repeats something in his word again and again, he repeats it for a reason because we need to hear it again and again. This is why we teach through the Bible. We don't just pick and choose our favorite passages. Who am I to say, no, we'll just leave that out and skip over to the next section. God put it in there. And there's repetition. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.1. He said, it is no trouble for me to write 
the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. And Peter wrote, So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the the tent of this body. He says, I'm going to tell you this again and again and again. Many studies show that something has to be repeated some 10 times before it makes its way into our long-term memory. Our memory needs to be refreshed. They even have learning techniques called spaced repetition, where there's certain intervals at which it's most helpful to get something into our long-term memory and into our habits. We can't say, well, I heard a sermon on Christian love seven years ago, and so I'm good. Or even seven weeks ago, or even seven days ago. God knew what he was doing when he put the repetition in his word. I I like what the Christian author John Ortberg said. He said this, he said, What repeatedly enters your mind and occupies your mind eventually shapes your mind and will ultimately express itself in what you do and what you become. I like that. I think that says it well. And so we're going to dive into this topic of love again, starting with the essence of love in verses 11 and 13. 11 through 13. Verse 11 says this. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. These believers heard this from the beginning. He's talking about from the very first time they heard the gospel. It's a gospel of love. It's good news of love. This was nothing new to them. But it's nothing new in the New Testament either. It's not the fir- and, and it's not the first time that they've heard it even in this letter. Turn back to chapter 2 verse 7. And look what is written there. John wrote, Dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have heard since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. And then he goes on in a couple of verses to say, it's loving one another. This is the message that he's speaking of once again. And he says it's an old command. How old? Like at the time, more than 1,400 years old. It goes all the way back to the giving of the law uh, through Moses in Leviticus 19. I'll read you what it says. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's 1400 BC. This is God's first time communicating to the nation of Israel his principles, his laws, his love. So it's nothing new. It's a very old commandment. And then 1,400 years later, which would now be around 30 AD, a religious leader, a Pharisee, came up to Jesus and he said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What are 613 of them to choose from? Can you imagine having to memorize or know all 613 laws? It would be like kind of reading the tax laws. But thankfully, they're summarized into just 10, which we know is the Ten Commandments. It captures all of those 613. But Jesus went even further. He boiled it down into just two. Just two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this. All the law and prophets, all 613 commandments in the law, hang on these two commandments, to love God and to love one another. 
In other words, the entire Old Testament can be summarized in just two commandments. So this is nothing new. It's been this way from the beginning. Sometimes I think we can get so much into the details that we can forget the two very simple commands of God. Love the Lord your God and love one another. That's what our motto is as a church, Riverside. It's a family of friends loving God and one another. Is it really that simple? Is all of the Bible really that simple? It really is. There's a lot more to it, but it's really that simple. And we just need to remember that. We need to hear it again and again. So that's verse 11. Verse 12, we get a little bit of a history lesson. It said, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain and Abel were brothers. They're the children of Adam and Eve. And we can presume that they both had a godly upbringing. You know what? They both worshipped. Cain was not an atheist. He's presented in scripture as someone who goes through the motions of worshiping God. So what happened? Well, he rejected the word of God. God rebuked him, but he refused to listen and respond. He went his own way. And he was filled with evil. It began with envy of his brother, then anger, then hatred, and it turned into murder. So there were these opposing values in these two brothers. Righteousness and evil is what it says in verse 12. In the meteorological world, it's common to have two opposing air masses. And where those two meet up, it's called a frontal boundary. And it's along the frontal boundary that all of the fireworks happen. That's where you get the lightning, the thunder, the heavy rain, the high wind, the hail. Even tornadoes typically occur along a frontal boundary where you have two opposing air masses. Usually one a little warmer and one a little colder. And the dynamics set up these fireworks. In the geological world, you can have two opposing land masses. And guess what? That is called a fault. A fault line. And it's along that fault line that you, again, have fireworks. You have volcanoes, lava, earthquakes. It happens where these two butt heads, you might say. Well, in the spiritual world, there are also two opposing forces of righteousness and evil. A couple artists tried to illustrate it this way. I, you know, the illustrations... They're, they're not perfect, but it just is a way to see that you have this collision of two world views of good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness. And where those two meet, there's going to be fireworks. And that's what we see here with Cain and Abel. And Abel. The fireworks were hatred, anger, murder. Why? Because it says... In verse 12, it says, why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. It's the collision of these. When one person chooses to follow God and another person chooses not to, you have two very different systems of worship, which result in two very different value systems and two very different worldviews. And so you're going to have this collision, the collision of righteousness and evil, of love and hate. And so we see it played out in the very first two brothers, Cain and Abel, 
And it didn't stop there. Verse 13 gives us this instruction. You could put a so in front of it. So do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Why would the world hate you? Because you love Jesus. You love his values. And they're vastly different than the world's values. And the world's going to hate you as a result. There will be fireworks. Do you feel that? Maybe even within your own family. Where you have believers and unbelievers together. Over Christmas. Over Thanksgiving. Conflicting worldviews and values and systems of worship resulting in fireworks. In a study by LifeWay Research, it's estimated that 360 million Christians suffered significant persecution for their faith in the past year alone. That's thought to be one out of seven Christians worldwide. 360 million. And tens of thousands of them were martyred. They were killed, murdered for what they believe. Just like Cain killed Abel. You can see in that graphic the top 10 countries where persecution is the greatest. Look what number one is Afghanistan. David Curry is the president of Open Doors USA and he said this, every Christian who remains in Afghanistan is either on the run or in hiding. Verse 13, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. It's the opposing forces of righteousness and evil. Now, when God profiles people, they fall into two big categories, believers and unbelievers. We talked about this earlier in the book. He calls one the children of God and the others, the children of the devil. There's no agnostics in between. There's children of God, children of the devil, righteousness and unrighteousness. And we're not righteous as believers because of what we have done. We're righteous because of what Christ has done for us. His righteousness has been poured into our account, imputed to us. But the world doesn't have that. So many people in the world now masquerade as worshipers. Cain was masquerading as a worshiper. But he wasn't willing to humble himself and follow the Lord. And that's what we see going around today. People refuse to submit to God's truth. And so their true spiritual lineage is seen in their hatred for God and for his values. They line up with Satan's agenda and not the Lord's. So this is the essence of love and hate. And let's look at the evidence of love. Verse 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Notice how it starts out. We know. We know. It doesn't say we presume, we imagine, we suppose, we hope. It says we know. This is the absolute certainty that we've been talking about. We know. What do we know? We know that we have passed from death to life. That's like the opposite of the natural way of things. Things on earth don't go from death to life. They go from life to death. 
Every living thing goes from life to death. Mechanical things go from life to death. But this says, we know that we have gone from death to life. New life. New birth. Born again. Born again and we receive a spiritual life that never ends. How can anybody possibly have the complete assurance that this has happened? Well, verse 14 continues. It said, because... We love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's a pretty bold statement if you think about it. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Do you tend to maybe just dismiss that? Eh, it's just a rhetorical expression. It doesn't really mean that we can know that for certainty. It's just it's kind of verbiage. Well, it's not. It's not said flippantly. This is God's word, and it's absolutely true. You can know that you have eternal life. Here's why this statement is true. Because you cannot love God and not love his people. It is impossible. You cannot love God and not love his people. Now, this isn't just my conjecture. I'm not just saying this. It's God's word. Let me read you the reference that I have there. 1 John 4, 20 through 21. It says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, meaning a fellow believer, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's a command. It is impossible to love God and not love God's people. This is why verse 14 in our text can say so emphatically, we know that we pass from death to life because we love our brothers. Now you might say, oh, I love a couple people in the church, so I'm definitely saved. <laughs> and I hope it's true. I want that to be true for all of us. I really, really do. But let me just give a, a gentle caution to each one of us, myself included, and say, not so fast. Not so fast. We need to clarify something in this passage, and it's this. We know that we have passed from death to life if we love with the kind of love that these verses are talking about. What kind of love are they talking about? They're talking about an agape love. From the Greek word agapa, ag, now I get all my tongue tied up. Agapayo, agapayo, there we go, agapayo. It's agape in the Greek language. This is the type of love. What is agape love? It's the highest form of love. It's not some cheap form of love that the world peddles. It's a divine love. The kind of love that can only come from God. And we're going to see in a minute exactly what that type of love looks like. Because we have a perfect example of it. We know that we have eternal life. If we love like this. With agape love. With divine love. So you can't love God without loving his people. You also can't love his people without loving God. Because the agape love that God desires can only come from a person whose heart has been transformed inwardly 
by the power of God. Otherwise, you just can't do it. You can emulate it, but you cannot love people the way God wants us to without loving God. So verse 14 continues, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Now this may seem kind of strong to equate hate with murder, doesn't it? Am I really a murderer if I've hated somebody? I don't know about you, but they're, they're not the same on a physical level. I would rather be hated by my neighbor than killed by my neighbor, wouldn't you? So they're not one in the same on a physical level, but on a spiritual level, in God's eyes, hate is the same as murder. The attitude is equal to the act. Think about that for a minute. We're not saying that hatred is equal to murder on a physical level, but on a spiritual level, it is. The attitude is equal to the act. Let me, let me try to illustrate it. I read about a visitor to the zoo who was chatting with the caretaker of the lions. And this visitor said, I have a cat at home and your lions act just like my cat. Look at them sleeping so peacefully. It's a shame that you have to put those beautiful creatures behind bars. Well, the caretaker laughed and said, my friend, these may look like your cat at home, but their disposition is radically different. There's murder in their hearts. You better be glad the bars are there. Radically different disposition. Think about that. There's murder in the heart of a lion and it's restrained only by the bars. Well, in society, some of what's in people's heart is only restrained by the bars that we have in place. Bars such as shame, the fear of being arrested, the fear of legal consequences, all those penalties of the law, including perhaps even death. But if those bars were removed, their behavior would be quite different. See, from God's perspective, the question isn't just what did a person do, but what would they do if they had the freedom to do as they pleased? What kind of form would that hatred take if they were free to do as they pleased? See, God knows. He looks at the heart and he said, no, 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 no. There's no difference. If you hate your brother on a spiritual level, you've murdered him. Well, look at the end of verse 14 along with 15. It says, anyone who does not re uh, love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has in him, has eternal life in him. Now, this verse, and there's another one in, in chapter 4 that is even more so, it's on the surface could seem to say that Loving a brother means little more than not hating him. You have hate and you have love. If you just don't hate your brother, you're loving him. But that's simply not the case. There's a big difference between hating someone and not hating them and loving them. So if on one hand you have murder and hate, and on the other hand you have love, there's this big space in between. And that's what we would call indifference. And indifference is just as much a sin. 
Indifference is a far cry from Christian love. Well, I'm not hating anybody. That doesn't mean you're loving them. So we're going to need to look at what this indifference looks like as well. And we'll see it in the verses that follow. So what does it look like then to love a brother or sister in Christ? With a Christ-like love. With an agape love. A divine love. The kind of love that assures us that we have eternal life. What does that look like? Well, I'm thankful we don't have to wonder because the text tells us. And let's look thirdly at the example of love in verses 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Hallelujah, we can know. It says Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Jesus is our perfect example of love. If you want to know what love looks like, agape love, divine love, look at Jesus. He's our perfect example. Now, I want to retrace a little bit of what we covered in chapter 2, because it's in here again. I want to look at what, how did Jesus love? What did that look like? If we're going to love like Jesus, what does that look like? Well, I hope to point out three things. First of all, Jesus loved unconditionally. The type of love it's talking about, agape love, is an unconditional love. He never showed hatred or malice toward people, even as awful as they were in their sin and in their treatment of him. Now, in his righteousness, he hated that sin. And he hated the ungodliness, but he still loved those sinful people. He reached out to tax collectors, adulterers, murderers, prostitutes. The worst of the worst in Hebrew society. And think of how his heart must have been broken when his own disciples, his own followers acted selfishly and ignorantly, denying, doubting, even betraying him. Those were his followers, yet he loved them. He even loved his enemies, the very ones who crucified him. I mean, think about what he said as they're crucifying him. He didn't say, boy, you're going to get yours. You're going to burn in hell. No. He said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they're doing. Jesus loved unconditionally. It didn't matter what people did to him. He still loved them. And he gave us this commandment. Here's where it gets hard. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. You must love one another unconditionally. Wow. That's a tall order. Because loving people in this way means we have to decide to love people even when we've been hurt by them. Anybody ever been hurt by people within the church? <laughs> yeah, I got wounds. If you haven't, then I'd have to question whether you're really coming to church or interacting with any believers at all. It happens, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I've hurt people. People have hurt me. It happens. So how do we respond? 
How are you responding right now to someone who's hurt you? Do you still have a close relationship with them? Do you have any relationship with them at all? Now, it might not be within your ability to have that relationship. Maybe they've left and broken off all communication. But if they haven't, do you have a close relationship with them? Are you still loving them or have you written them off? See, Jesus continued to love unconditionally, even those who hurt him the most. So his love was unconditional. Second, Jesus loved humbly. I can't think of a better example than when he got down and washed the feet of the disciples. That was such a great act of humility. And listen to what he said again. He said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. He said, this is what humility looks like. I'm loving you with humility, and you need to do the same. Divine love, it's, it's unconditional, and it's humble. So what does it look like for you and I to love each other humbly? It means stooping to serve. I say stooping because in our flesh, we gravitate towards those things that build us up, that make us feel good, that make us feel better about ourselves, that make us look good. That's the kind of serving we want to do. Our focus can be more on ourselves and how we look and feel than on the people we're serving. Amen? I'm, I'm, this is a confession. I'm not pinning this on you. I'm telling you, I feel this in my heart. But Scripture says we're to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. How do we do that? We stoop to serve them. Even when it's inconvenient to us. Even when it doesn't make us look good. We probably all have some work to do there, don't we? To love each other humbly. But one of the most significant ways that Jesus loved others, and the way that's really borne out in this passage, is that he loved sacrificially. Verse 16 in our passage says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. He's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done himself. All three times he said, I'm doing this, and it's an example for you, and I want you to do it just as I've done it. Have you ever laid down your life for a brother or sister in Christ? Well, obviously not, because I'm still alive, right? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Come on, Paul. But laying down our life doesn't mean we have to die for someone. Jesus did, but it doesn't have to be laying down our life to the point of death. Many have. But the Bible says we're to offer our bodies as a, what? Living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's Romans 12.1. So it's usually a living sacrifice, but here's the thing. Divine love always, always, always requires a sacrifice. It may not mean laying down our lives physically, but it will mean sacrificing something, whether that's our time, our dignity, our treasure, our comfort, our social status. 
Divine love always requires a sacrifice. And verse 17 points to this. It says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? He's not even willing to sacrificially love a brother in Christ. Now, I have to admit, this verse can be kind of frightening if we're honest. Because there's people with needs all around us. And meeting the needs of all the needy people around us can drain our pocketbook like trying to balance the federal budget with your own checkbook. It's going to last about that, not even that long, <laughs> like a nanosecond. We can't do it. Our resources would be drained instantly. So is this what this verse is calling us to, to do? I don't think so. I don't think so, and here's why. The verse is speaking of a brother. That implies somebody with whom we have a relationship. Primarily, believers in the church. We have a relationship. We're blood brothers and sisters in Christ. That's to be a first or a top priority. Let me read you Galatians 6.10. It says, therefore, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So believers are a priority. And I'd go a step further. I'd say the emphasis is on those who God places in our path. The, the Good Samaritan is a great example of this. God literally placed this man in his path. And many went around and chose a different path to avoid him. But the Good Samaritan said, here's a man. He was a stranger. May have been a fellow he might not have been, he was probably not, uh, well, the Samaritan, whether he was a worshiper of God, we don't know. But he helped them anyway. He was in his path. So a brother in Christ is a priority. Someone God places in our path. But then there's another verse that shines light on this. First Timothy 5.8 says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So relatives, our immediate family, that's another priority. So when verse 17 is speaking of giving to a brother in need, I don't think it's talking about standing on the street corner and giving away everything you have to just whoever comes up. It's talking about somebody we have a relationship with, who God places in our path, especially Family members, especially our immediate family, and especially brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in our local body, but not exclusively. That person the Good Samaritan helped was a stranger to him, but God placed him in his path. So a brother in need, I believe is speaking primarily, but not exclusively, of a relative or a fellow believer who God places in our path. If we see a brother in need and, and it qualifies it, and we have material possessions, we got the money, we've got what that person needs, but if we're unwilling to share it sacrificially, if we just choose to do nothing in difference, then the love of Christ is not in us. That's what indifference is, choosing to do nothing. And this too is sin. It falls way short of the love of God that he's looking for. Now, once again, in our flesh, our tendency, confession time, can be to love and serve others when it doesn't inconvenience us, right? When it doesn't cost us anything. 
When, but there's no sacrifice in that. And where there's no sacrifice, there's no divine love. Because divine love, agape love, always requires a sacrifice. We have to give up something in order to love in that way. Now, I said a little earlier that agape love that God desires can only come from a person whose heart has been transformed inwardly by the power of God. And you might be thinking now, wait a minute, Paul. I know a lot of non-Christians who love their family and they do good to other people. They're scoutmasters and coaches. They sacrifice their time to serve in the community. They give to the Red Cross. Yes. But for people who love other people but do not love God, it's nothing more than philanthropy. It's not agape love. It's not divine love. It's not the type of faith-filled, Christ-motivated love that God is looking for. They're not doing it for the glory of God. They have other motivations, whatever those might be. Gape love that God desires can only come from a person whose heart has been transformed inwardly by the power of God. Let me try to illustrate this another way. For a person who's not in Christ, nothing he does is rooted in faith. Nor is he motivated to do it for God's glory. Again, these motivations come from somewhere else, whatever they are. But they're not from faith. And the Bible says everything that does not come from faith is what? Sin. Sin. So while believers can love someone sacrificially, they can't love with the same kind of faith-filled, Christ-motivated love with the purpose of bringing glory to God. It's only when God pours his divine love into us that we can love others with a divine love. It's only when we have his spirit within us. Then we can love with agape love. Rooted in faith with the goal of glorifying God. So there's one final verse, verse 18. We'll just touch on it. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Well, suffice it to say, agape love is not emotion it's action. It's doing something. It's a verb. It's doing something. And it's not flattery. Oh, yeah, I love you, you know. We, it's easy to say those kind of things. But when we pass someone in the hall and we're kind of friendly toward them and even maybe strike up a conversation, do we really care about how that person's doing? Are we really even listening? How could I help this person? How can I pray for this? But do we care? Or are we just trying to put on a pleasant face for our brothers and sisters? There's just, there's just no room for indifference. Loving people will be inconvenient and it'll cost us something. It's a sacrifice. It requires our time and our emotional energy, even our resources. It might require our very life. We have a perfect example in Jesus. He loved unconditionally, loved humbly. He loved sacrificially. And if we put all these things together, we can come up with a pretty good definition of what divine love is, the type of love that God wants from us. 
divine love, agape love. I hope I'm on the right slide. Almost. Divine love is a self-sacrificing love that intentionally desires the glory of God and the highest good for others. That's divine love. That's what is being spoken of in this passage. None of us loves perfectly this way. There's going to be brothers and sisters we get frustrated with. We might even get angry at. But we still, the, the pattern of our life overall, not perfection, but we should be loving people this way. See, God, if he's transformed our heart, we can't help but do this. Now, it still takes an act of our own will. God isn't going to force us to. We have to desire to do this. But as we get to know the Lord and we learn what he's done from us, we can't help it. We want to love in this way. As we draw close to God, as we walk in the light, it said in chapter 2, the result is we love our brothers and sisters. We love them in a, with a divine love, an agape love. I, I, there's a lot of great examples of this happening in this church. There really are. I see them all the time. And I just want to encourage you. I'm just going to pick one out because I thought it was beautiful. And many of you know uh, Roger Johnston. Roger Johnston can't live at home anymore. He's in, a, in an assisted living uh, home down in Batavia. And his wife Paula visits him often. But he requires assisted living. And for his birthday, look what our group of Riverside Riders, our motorcycle club, did. This was so beautiful. They went down to Batavia to celebrate Roger's birthday with him. And, and they made him like an honorary member of the Riverside Riders. They gave him a Riverside Riders t-shirt. They, they got that cake. Look at that cake. I think it says, happy birthday, Roger. Love the RCC Riders. Was there anything in that for them at all? Nothing. They had to sacrifice time. Somebody had to plan that. Somebody had to order the cake. I'll bet you there were other things they could have been doing with that time. But what did they do? They were seeking God's glory and Roger's highest good. And so they set those other things aside. They sacrificed their time, even a little bit of resources, and they went down there to encourage Roger. What a blessing it was to Roger, and I'm sure to Paula too. See, this is, what, this is what agape love looks like. And again, I see it happening all the time, but I just want to get our minds around it because it can be so hypothetical, esoterical, that we don't really stop to think how we could be doing that. This is what, this is what it looks like to love God and love one another. Amen? Well, I want to wrap it up. I didn't have a lot of time to do a wrap-up last night, this morning. <laughs> Both schedule was pretty squeezed this week. But I, I think I can wrap it up in just a single sentence. And it's this. When we begin to love our brothers and sisters as Christ does, unconditionally, humbly, 
and sacrificially with the goal of glorifying God, then we know we have eternal life. Do you ever just pause and think back? It's like, where did that come from? Ten years ago, I wouldn't have done that. But it just happened. I'm loving people. I'm serving people in this way. It gives us assurance. God says you can know that you have eternal life. But if this is not what our lives look like, if our purpose is self-serving in everything, that's a selfish worldly love. That's not a divine agape love. So we need to really consider, am I in Christ? Is his spirit in me? Is he working through me? Am I loving my fellow brothers and sisters and the people God puts in my path, am I loving them this way? I have work to do, I'll be honest. I don't always do this. I'm trying really hard, but I don't always do it. So what do we do? We go back to our knees. Go back to our knees and we confess it to the Lord. We don't need to be quick on our feet. We need to be quick on our knees. And confess that and ask God for the strength to love others the way he loved us. That's what he wants from us. A family or friends, loving God and one another. This is what it looks like. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful that you are a God of love. Complete power, but complete goodness and love. And that's just the very essence of your being, Lord. And you showed us that in Christ. We're celebrating Christmas. A gift of love wrapped in flesh and blood given to us. God, I just thank you for that love that you have for us. And for the way you've demonstrated it. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your love. Give us the power to love one another as you have first loved us. God, a love that puts the needs of others before our own. A self-sacrificing love, God. God, we want to do this not for our own status, appearance, not to feel good. But we want to do this to bring you glory, Lord. So help us in this. And it's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen.